Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 13, 2017, we focus on a featured article in the new WPJ Fall issue about a program born in Belgium to help Muslim mothers everywhere recognize and resist terrorist recruitment of their children. We'll also spotlight other top features in that new issue. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io Risk and Geostrategy Consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. About now, a month or so after each 9-11 anniversary, life for most people here in the New York area returns us to our regularly scheduled programming. Not so those dispatched to Afghanistan the following month, of course. Not so the first responders and certainly not those who lost loved ones in the attack. I got a grim reminder of the continuing price these innocent people pay when they learned of the suicide of Kevin Babakatis. He was the son of one of the many people I knew who died on 9-11. Kevin killed himself in 2011, 10 years after his mom died, in the North Tower. I only knew Kevin from a series of phone calls starting late in the afternoon of the attack and ending on September 15th when I left for Afghanistan. I was a correspondent for MSNBC at the time, and had witnessed the attacks from the Jersey side of the Hudson, prevented from getting any closer by the police quarantine imposed on Manhattan that day. But I was close enough. After scrambling around the Hudson Riverfront all morning, I got back to MSNBC's offices, then in Secaucus, New Jersey, and started working the phones. Kevin was the son of Port Authority worker Arlene Babakitis, who worked on the 64th floor of the North Tower. A day earlier, I had met him briefly when I agreed to rent an apartment from his mom. When he phoned, I told Kevin I would do what I could to find out what happened to her, but it was no use. His mom was in a full leg cast, I remembered. Posters of her put up by Kevin and other family members listed her as missing for weeks afterwards. Her remains have never been identified. Kevin's call was just one of many that day. Another from my grandmother was a frantic effort to find her son and my uncle, John, a Merrill Lynch trader on Wall Street. I came across him alighting from a ferry in Weehawken, New Jersey, his pinstripe suit plastered in ash. My ex-wife called to say that a great friend, Graham Berkeley, was on United 175, the plane that hit the South Tower. My cousins Jack and Ray also called, each concerned about a firefighter, a stock trader, or a police officer they knew, some of whom never returned, though one made a miraculous escape from the 97th floor of the South Tower. Terrorists and their supporters like to think their tactics level the playing field in an unjust world. But random murder is random murder. Kevin's suicide is just another young life destroyed by random evil years after the event. I wonder how many other victims are not accounted for in the attack's official death toll. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Par des réseaux de recrutement, mais aussi par une politique laxiste. Mon mari a eu des menaces de mort, mon fils aîné a eu. Donc le fait que je n'accepte pas et que je ne me taise pas, je pose un problème. Saliha Ben Ali, mother of Belgian teenager Sabri Refla, radicalized and recruited to jihad from a poignant documentary called La Chambre Vide, The Empty Room, presented by Amnesty International and Movies That Matter. 
Quote, he was kidnapped by recruiting networks, but also lax and reckless policies, she charges. My husband received death threats. My oldest son, too. Since I won't keep quiet about this, I pose a problem. Sabri died fighting in Syria four years ago, and last year, bizarrely, was convicted in absentia by a Brussels court for participating in a terrorist organization. But for his mother, after initial depression and hospitalization, the fight to counter other such tragedies goes on. By 2015, she was one of the most vocal Muslim mothers in Europe and founder of Save Belgium, a nonprofit aiming to prevent radicalization by helping parents, especially mothers, understand factors that contribute to it, signs that the process is underway, and steps that can be taken before, during, and after. Her expertise is in high demand. This past June, Ben Ali spoke about combating terrorism to an audience of policymakers from Europe and the Middle East at a conference in Marseille. In July, she addressed the United Nations in Geneva, where the documentary La Chambre Vide was screened. In August, Ben Ali led workshops bringing together radicalized youth and their parents in Montreal. For the conversation feature in World Policy Journal's new fall issue, freelance journalist Lisa Debode spoke with Ben Ali in French, and I spoke with Debode about it recently for this podcast. Lisa Debode, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tell us more about what Ben Ali said happened to her son. So Ben Ali told me that um, so Sabri is her second child, her second son. He left on August 13, 2013 for Syria. So that's about three years ago now, um, four years ago, um, without telling her, without telling anyone in the family. Um, he was 19. Um, he told her that he went to serve the so-called just and noble cause of defending the Syrian people against extermination um, by their president. Um, he left to participate in jihad, she said, and died three and, a month, three and a half months later. It was a terrible shock for her. Um, it felt like a betrayal. It took her a few days to realize what had happened. Um, she told me that when she heard about this, um, it, it felt like a physical impact on her body. Um, her body had never felt as heavy as it did in those few days. Um, she, um, and a few, I mean, after that, she needed to be hospitalized to, to recover from, from the shock of all of it. But after that, um, she decided to do something as a family because she refused to have other parents run the risk of suffering the way that she was, and they were. Um, so she didn't want to become an activist yet, but the first thing that she did was speak out publicly to warn other families because she said they needed to know that the, that the phenomenon existed, the phenomenon of um, jihadist recruiters. Because if she had known, she would have paid more attention to Sabri, um, because when he was changing, she said that they had questions without answers. And the, the phrase that she often uses with me and with others is um, she didn't have the right dictionary to translate those changes in his behavior. The phrase or the use of that word is interesting, the right dictionary, because um, uh, it, people often ask, you know, what's so particular about Brussels or Molenbeek? Why are so many people, why did so many people leave from there? And it has to do also with the uh, linguistic problems or this, the strife that exists between the different communities. There's people who speak Dutch, there is a French-speaking community, and people speak Arabic. And the younger generation will speak um, uh, they will learn Dutch in schools, but their parents will often only speak French or, um, or Arabic or both. And so um, this created a disconnect, a linguistic disconnect between 
um, kids and their parents. And the recruiters knew this. They exploited this, this disconnect. And um, they would talk to them in Dutch, for example, um, and they, they, they figured out the right word to talk to them. So to go back to dictionary, um, I thought that was a particularly poignant way of, of, of talking about uh, something that they wish they had known before everything happened, everything else happened. What were the kinds of changes that she failed to, to note or, or didn't place enough importance on? What kind of changes? The behavior that she, that she was referring to is that he quit sports. Um, he stopped seeing his friends who weren't Muslims or practicing Muslims. He stopped watching television, um, listening to music, looking at photographs. Um, he told her that she needed to quit her job because she mingled with male co-workers. Um, he said that they needed to leave Belgium soon and respect Islamic law, not democracy. And, um, and so these kind of changes, that behavior is what isolated him. Um, and she worried about him. And she told herself, he's only 18 years old. How is he going to live life being that close off to society? How did his departure uh, finally inspire Benali to become the activist that she is today? So at first, um, you know, when she was giving interviews on TV, parents would tell her, we're going through the exact same thing. Now I finally understand that my child's in danger because he's radicalizing. And that was a start for her. But then, um, because she was the first Muslim mother in Europe to speak out, a lot of Belgian Muslims told her, don't do this, you're dragging us through the mud. Um, people won't differentiate between us and the ones who left. And she told them, you know, that's exactly why they need to hear my story, so I can, so they can make the difference themselves. And so this is how she came to see that speaking out publicly in her role as a mother of a foreign fighter really could make a difference to um, to other parents and to society as a whole. But as she was doing this, she received more pushback, or a lot of pushback from the Muslim community themselves. So at this point, she addressed, she started to address politicians as well. Um, because she says, you know, they bear some of the responsibility for what's happened. Um, she told the politicians they needed to involve families of foreign fighters to work on prevention and not just tighten security measures. Um, this took about two years, this work of talking to politicians, getting them to listen to her, um, and not just politicians, but also academic researchers who have put out so many papers on this phenomenon, on ISIS in the past years. Um, and, you know, sometimes people would rather listen, or many times would rather listen to them than, than, than to someone like her. But then, you know, because she was one of the few mothers to enter the public stage, she began receiving invitations to travel around the world and share her knowledge. And that's how the movement started to take shape. Uh, you made reference to Brussels and Malenbeek. Almost 500 young people have left Brussels to join foreign terror groups since 2011, the largest number per capita in all of Europe. Uh, what yeah. did Ben Ali say about why Brussels, and particularly Malenbeek, uh, is such a fertile hunting ground for Islamic State recruiters, especially one called Papa Noel? Who was he, yeah. what did he do, and how did he get away with it? So there is the, um, the linguistic divide, which, which I mentioned, mentioned before, um, her phrase on, on, on not having the right dictionary. Um, but, but then also, obviously, there was the presence of recruiters who've been there for many, many years, people such as Papa Noel, like you just said. Um, and, um, and so the fact that their network had been there for many years before even the war in Syria started 
made sure that um, they were able to use uh, those logistics, that infrastructure, basically, to send um, to send young people away. Um, so Papa Noel um, is, is his real name is um, Khalid Zerkani. Um, he was called that way for the gifts that he handed out to his followers, um, and he's the one who recruited her son Sabri. Um, all the kids called him Z uh, from from Zerkani. Um, and the, one of his accomplices was, was named Jean-Louis Denis. Um, he was a convert who ran a charity distributing meals to the homeless at the Gare du Nord in Brussels. Um, and so those people had been there for a while. And she says, you know, the former mayor of, of Molenbeek turned a blind eye to what was going on, to these people being there for a number of years. Um, and even like so when I when I was there um, covering the Brussels attack in March, um, the before they made it like the security officials made a major arrest of someone who had been involved in the 9-11 attacks even. Um, and they connected him like he was connected to the investigation of the terror attacks. But the nights before reporting of, of talking to people in the streets, like people knew that he, like they told me his name ahead of the arrest. And this was like a, obviously like a top secret investigation and arrest. But the point being is that people knew that he had been living in Brussels for many, many years. Um, but, but the police didn't know where he was until something as bad happened as like the Brussels terror attacks. Um, and why was the mayor of Molenbeek uh, so uh, lax or, or turning a blind eye when, when this was a potential problem? I mean, what was in it for him not to pay attention to this problem? So Celia told me what she says is that, you know, they didn't want, he didn't want um, newcomers to integrate or learn the language. Um, all was fine as long as they voted for him. And... And so this this deal, essentially, political deal, um, made it an attractive spot to establish international jihadist networks, um, which sent fighters to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, um, and Syria. Um, but it wasn't until the war in Syria that this tactic eventually backfired when youth began returning to Brussels to commit attacks. She also mentions the prison system as a source of the problem. Talk more about that. Yes, um, she you know, she says when she looks at the profiles of Belgians who left for Syria to, and then returned to commit terror attacks, many of them spend time behind bars, um, most specifically at the prisons in Saint-Gilles and Forêt. Um, preachers were able to work under the radar for about a year or two, just long enough to put ideas in people's heads. Um, and she says the same is true in France and other countries where attacks happened. Um, so obviously that's that's that has been a big element um, in in these events. But then, um, as like a social worker who she knows well, um, who works with radicalized youth in those prisons, um, he told her, you know, Celia, I want to do so many things, but I can't because the guards don't want to. For them, it's extra work. Um, they would have to switch up their routines to implement the work I do, so they couldn't care less. Um, so, so that's, obvi- that, that's, that's obviously a worrying observation. Um, and she gets the same response, she says, at schools where she'll give talks about radicalization. She said that a teacher told her, 
well, now that you've come, you know, we'll have more work because the students will want to talk about radicalization. Um, and, and so responses like that aren't going to help anyone in, in making sure that, um, that this threat and the trust can be restored. Well, she's created her own institution. Say more about the Atelier de Maman, Mother's workshop, Workshops that she runs. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so she, she has indeed. Like, she is working on, she's creating her own institutions. And, and um, she started those in 2015 because, um, in which she, you know, she worked solely with mothers in those ateliers. And she says, you know, she's always believed that the mother is best placed to raise alarm and protect the child when he radicalizes. Why? Um, because she's going to be the closest person to the child. Um, and, and this is, this is what she does is couched in, in political relations theory, um, looking at conflicts in Bosnia or Argentina where uh, mothers um, of combatants, or in this case foreign fighters, have been key in, in conflict resolution because they're just so close to combatants. If you exclude them, it's just not a, it's not a wise thing to do. She says that the mothers are sometimes maintain continuing contact, even when the kids have become members of the jihad, and especially in prison, uh, they can be uh, perhaps the only bridge. Exactly, that's well put. Like they can be the only bridge, um, and so to strengthen that bond, that's what she does in those ateliers and those workshops, is going to be key if you want to if you want to cross the actual bridge. Um, so she told me, you know, we can safely say that a mother is the best interlocutor and guarantor of the security of her child, and then by proxy of a country. What does she actually teach in the workshops? What does a session look like? What are the steps that she is uh, training, teaching the mothers to take? So there's 10 sessions in total. Um, there's about 12 or 15 of them, and they gather from 9 a.m. until noon, once a week. Um, the workshops take place at community centers, um, where some of the moms come to learn French or Dutch. Um, and the first four of those sessions really focus on the mothers. They talk about where each woman is from, um, where her family um, immigrated from, um, what she's known, um, what her relationship was to her own mother or to her father and to her grandparents. Um, and so what this really does is it, it allows her to focus on herself. You know, it's, I think for any one of us, it's only when we, when we own or when we can own the experiences that we've had and know who we are um, and, and what wounds to heal and what we can offer that you're able to give more to those around you, including one's children. And so, um, you know, Axelia says it's so important specifically or particularly with mothers, because when you ask any mother um, to talk uh, about herself, she, like some of them will just go and talk about her children. She'll rarely talk about herself because she believes that her only worth um, lies there. And, um, but it's only when you get her to talk about herself that you can actually work on the relationship with her children as well. And say more about how the mothers learn to deal differently with their children as a result of these sessions. Um, well, she say, you know, like the way that we treat our children is really going to determine whether they'll have self-confidence or not. And again, like if you look at all the studies that are coming out on childhood trauma, um, it really 
affects one's ability to learn, to learn and also to, to love, to have relationships with other people, including for oneself, hence the self-confidence. So if a child can feel good among his family, he will look elsewhere, gangs, sects, extremists. And in Syria, the terrorist groups, they knew this. They spoke of the world as traitors and tried to paint a bad picture of the family that stayed behind in Europe. How does her work differ from government-funded de-radicalization programs? So, Celia, she works in primary intervention. So she gives workshops to mothers before their children are radicalized. But then if you, if you ask, you know, what, what does that mean? Can those de-radicalization programs, can they, can they work? She'll tell you, you know, I, I actually think that de-radicalization doesn't exist. Um, she says that you can't be inside someone's head. You can't erase what was once there. And it's like running into a wall with a bulldozer. You'll completely break someone and it might just turn out worse than before. So rather than calling it de-radicalization, she prefers to say disengagement. She'll say, you know, it's best to say it's your right to think this way in a Western democracy where we embrace freedom of speech but I'm suggesting you find a way to serve society in a non-violent way. That's her philosophy when it comes to a government-funded de-radicalization programs. Um, and, but then, of course, anything that comes from the state, anything that's government-funded, she says, is not going to be welcomed by recruits, where particularly you know, anything that's coming from, from a foreign entity, in this case, like the Belgian government, it's, it's not going to, it, they won't trust it. So if you're in prison, suggesting or trying to work with those programs, it's not going to work, she says. But if you're in school when people are younger, you might still have a chance. And so that's when it's important to work. That's why it's important to work with the family, because they can um, accompany them on this trajectory. They can be a filter. Banali is not happy about media coverage of families whose kids are recruited. Yes, that's very true. She's definitely not happy. Um, you know, she says that the media is guilty of covering these stories as, as if the entire family were complicit. Um, and so in the coverage, people will assume that the children were brought up badly um, or uh, worse yet, that they weren't loved. And the person responsible for this is always going to be the mother, is the, the inclination. Um, and so the result of this is that the families who are subjected to this kind of coverage will think of themselves only as the relatives of terrorists. And so to go back to like the work she does in those ateliers de maman, in those workshops, the whole point of it is to improve their own self-esteem and self-confidence so that she can have a better relationship with, with her children. And, and so the negative media coverage isn't very helpful in, in trying to establish this, she says. Um, but it's not just the media. It's also imams. Um, they told her that she didn't know how to raise her child according to Islam. In response, she said, you know, like, then why is it that 3,500 men from Saudi Arabia and 8,000 from Tunisia left for Syria, that they too not know Islam? Hmm. How did she say other family members, such as brothers and sisters, are affected by the stigma, including uh, another of her sons? Well, she says, you know, everything depends on how the parents approach this uh, and talk about this stigma. So again, like it, it all depends on like how like the parents work on the bond with their children. Um, she says that she has 
um, always told her children that they have done nothing wrong, um, that they should not feel ashamed about anything. Society tries to make them feel guilty as if they're responsible for what happened, but, you know, they're not responsible for anything. Um, is, is what she says. And so very specifically in the case of her um, eldest son, Fabri's oldest brother, he can't find work currently, not as a security guard or a clerk because officials think that he might be part of a terrorist organization, the one that recruited Fabri. So this has a real uh, impact on the family and on, on his life, obviously. Um, is there any way of judging how successful her projects have been? How many uh, how many mothers have gone through it? Uh, what kinds of, of of evidence or case histories uh, she can point to to say that, that that this kind of work with the mothers has has worked is working uh, is something that uh, that the society should be more aware of, uh, comfortable with, confident of. The, the stories that, that I've heard from um, people in this group and from her is that they have indeed, um, thanks to being, having learned about the telltale signs of radicalization, the changes in behavior we talked about, the, the dictionary that she's been teaching them, that they have been able to, to intervene in time, to stop them, um, to go home and to, um, to assume the role of a parent, of a mother, and, and intervene, the isolation, stop it before it's too late. I know that those stories have been, um, and those cases have been followed by authorities as well, and they've been um, tracked by, by officials in Brussels. So I think this kind of work is, has been pretty effective. Lisa DeBode, thank you. Thank you. Lisa DeBode is a freelance journalist who interviewed Saliha Ben Ali for the conversation feature headline, Saving Families from Our Fate, in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal. Also featured in the WPJ fall issue, you'll find articles about new terror group tactics to recruit young women, about rape and priestly power in Nicaragua, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on how immigration rules in the UK put a special price on family unification. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jarombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. 